Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Margaret Slater. Dr. Slater obtained her DVM from Cornell University in 1986 and spent a year in small animal practice. She returned to Cornell to complete her PhD in epidemiology in 1990. Dr. Slater was on the faculty of the College of Veterinary Medicine at Texas A&M University from 1990 until 2008 when she joined the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Dr. Slater is internationally recognized for her work on the sources, problems, and potential solutions for free-roaming cats and dogs. Dr. Slater currently provides epidemiological and statistical support for staff across the ASPCA. Her present projects range from community cat solutions to identifying the capacity of horse rescues to what services increase pet retention in underserved neighborhoods. She's on the International Advisory Council Science Advisory Board of the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs. Dr. Slater has more than 115 peer-reviewed publications and two books. Her first book, Community Approaches to Feral Cats, Problems, Alternatives, and Recommendations, was published by the Humane Society Press in 2002. Her second book, Veterinary Epidemiology, an Evidence-Based Approach, published in 2003, describes the process of using the veterinary literature to bring new science into veterinary practice. Her invited chapters on feral cats were published in John August's Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine in 2001 and 2009, The Welfare of Cats in 2004, edited by Irene Brooklitz, and The State of the Animals, Part 3, published by Humane Society Press. She has also co-authored a chapter on the behavioral ecology of free-roaming cats for the text Animal Behavior for Shelter Medicine and Staff in 2015. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. (laughs) When I read there 115, I almost choked. I mean, this is just amazing, an amazing list of accomplishments that you have had over your career. And I just I want to thank you for all of your hard efforts and work that you've done. And also thank you for coming on the show. It's a privilege and an honor to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. So I know that we met many, many years ago with you doing research on community cats. Can you tell me about how you got started studying community cats and how you actually sort of fell in love with the cause? I was in Texas, and the head of the local shelter said, hey, did you see that the AVMA is having this one-day seminar on, it had like five different versions, free-arming, feral, stray cats you want to go? And I hadn't thought about going, but it sounded like fun. And we went and it was very engaging and very interesting. And I also was then invited to another uh, work group kind of thing on the panel for feral and community cats. And although we weren't calling them community cats at the time. 
And it became very clear from that meeting that there was a lot of unanswered questions about them. How many were they, which we always get an answer, a question about how long do they live? What kind of lives do they live? Where do they live? How do they come about? And that prompted um, me to take a one-year sabbatical supported by Humane Society of the United States. And that led to the book on cats that you just listed out. So that kind of really got me going on the academic side. Right around the same time, there was a, well, at the time she was a technician, she later became a veterinary student, who said, you know, there's cats on our Texas A&M campus here, and we're not really doing anything about them. What should we do? She said, I want to do trap, neuter, return. And I went, oh, okay. So I went and talked to a whole bunch of people and actually got a lot of support from physical plant from on campus, which surprised me. They really wanted to have some kind of a a program that was humane and good for the cats. And we ended up, long story short, integrating it into the, the fourth year veterinary student surgical experiences. So once a month, the students on the, the general surgery rotation would neuter a bunch of feral cats. And after about a year and a half, we had trapped and neutered all the cats on campus. It was about 150 or so. Some had been adopted because they were socialized and some were still unsocialized and we returned them. And then but the program was so successful that um, I decided to start a community trap neuter return program. They have since been absorbed into another larger spay neuter program in the area, but they are still trapping community cats and bringing them into the vet school for the students to neuter them. And that helps us uh, show that veterinary students that once they're sleeping, uh, feral cats are just like other cats. It gives the staff there a chance to talk a little bit more about cat behavior and TNR in the community. And those students also do some shelter rotations at Texas A&M. So it sort of completes that picture of what goes on with cats. So I've been doing work on community cats for about 25 years now. And Stacy, you and I met when I was doing research for the book. Yeah, it was a while ago, definitely. And one of the things that struck me at that point in time was really the need for for good data, which unfortunately I think our Newburyport colony situation was very uh, tribal knowledge oriented, which is not something that is great for scientific literature. There were 300 cats here yesterday and today there are none, but yet the paperwork and the documentation and the tracking over periods of time wasn't necessarily there. Um, how important is data tracking for colony management? I think it's really important. There's a couple different reasons for that. For one, if you're a colony caretaker, knowing who's coming and going in your colony is important because it allows you just to understand the lifestyles of the cats. Has this cat been with you for 15 years? Like some cats I've met in colonies. They were actually born into colonies and lived there their whole lives. Or is this a cat that arrived as an older cat and has only been there a couple of years? So knowing about your cats and what their life expectancies, their comings and goings, helps us document that cats in managed colonies, once they're neutered, do quite well. So that's one important piece as a caretaker. Also, as a researcher and as someone who's looked for grant funding, when you're trying to get money for the surgeries for these cats, being able to say we have X number of colonies and each colony has this number of cats is really helpful because then you have a good idea of how many cats you're really dealing with. And you can make a plan. You can say, yes, we were able to trap them all. We were able to neuter them all. And that makes a really strong case for funding and for continued funding. 
The other piece for us that's perhaps a little more esoteric is we've been doing, I've been working with the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs. Um, that's a great group that is interested in non-surgical contraception. They got involved, of course, in community cats because there's a whole lot of cats. And there's a, a very interdisciplinary group of us doing some population dynamics modeling. That means that we're working with someone who has a lot of experience in this kind of mathematical simulation modeling. And we're trying to get a clear handle on how many cats you have to neuter at one time across one time period to stabilize or decrease the population. So we're looking at populations larger than a single colony by and large, but smaller probably than a city. But we have a couple of different settings that we're using, a couple different cat densities. And um, we want, of course, to be able to compare that to some of the other options. What happens if we adopt some of these cats? What happens if cats are abandoned who are intact and come into this group of cats? What happens if these cats are trapped and removed and unfortunately perhaps euthanized? And what are the relative costs for that? And what are the relative time sinks for that? You know, how much time does it really take to do that? So we're looking at both people costs and actual out-of-pocket costs for that. So that's been really interesting. We published the first paper looking at population modeling, and we're in the process now of writing up a paper that looks at the economic side of it. That led us to do a lot of talking to a lot of different people about what their costs were. And as you already alluded to, sometimes it's really hard to get some data. But we were able to get enough data that we feel like we have a range of what these things cost. One of the pieces from that that was really interesting to me was that we were trying to model the trapping efficiency. So if you put out 20 traps and you have 15 cats, how long does it take you to trap all of those cats? And it turns out there's a, only a little bit of data on that. So trying to better understand what goes on with traps and trapping and um, how successful people are has been something we've been looking at. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Accidental Exiles by Bruce Perry. Jesse McAllister, a young Texan and Iraq war vet, escapes to Europe where he seeks a new direction and to heal his desert wounds. Wandering the streets of Escona, Switzerland, he meets and falls in love with a beautiful Italian waitress named Sonia Altarelli. Since the horrors of combat he encountered with a boyhood friend, Jesse will have nothing more to do with war. This story is his farewell to arms. Check out Accidental Exiles on Amazon.com today. Are you starting to think about that special holiday gift? Why not give the gift of a Community Cats podcast branded t-shirt, coffee mug, bag, or other item? This is the perfect way to spread the word about helping Community Cats. The proceeds from the sales will go to support the Community Cats podcast and the Community Cats grants program, which helps small groups grow their fundraising programs to be able to fund more spay-neuter programs for free-roaming cats. Go to www.communitycatspodcast.com and click on our shop button in the menu bar today to get that perfect community cat gift right now. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. Are you looking at different styles of trapping, too? Traditional traps versus using the drop trap technology? We've actually stuck to just the traditional traps because we've had so many complexities with that relative to how many cats are there, how many traps are there, how likely are we to trap cats. And we know that some cats are really easy to trap. We've had cats that continue to go in the trap night after night, even after they're neutered. And some cats are very difficult to trap. 
if not nearly impossible. So we've stuck with just the regular trapping um, to work on for the model. Uh, But we've acknowledged that some people have different skills and different knowledge and different baits. And so we're sort of assuming that we have a fairly experienced trapper doing the trapping and that they'll adjust the traps and the trap locations and the baits as needed to catch as many cats. Some of the other factors that I think of with that is if you are in a simulation, I'm, you know, I love the idea of sort of community cat simulator, but you never know who's feeding whom. So if you're in a certain environment, there may be four feeders you don't even know about that are feeding these cats. But yet then you could be in another environment where this is like the sole source of food. And I would assume if I were a cat, I would walk into a trap more readily if it's the only way I could get at food, where if I had food around the corner, I would be less likely to go into that trap. Absolutely. So the reality of it is is quite complex. And what people say about these kind of simulation models is that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And so what we're really using this one for is to be able to incorporate as much reality as we can without getting carried away and use it to compare different systems. So we're really interested in comparing just trap, neuter, and return, comparing trap, neuter, return with adoption, comparing trap, neuter, return with trapping and removing for euthanasia. And so that um, even though it's not perfectly representative of reality, it's the same uh, representation of reality across those different scenarios. And so that gives us a chance to really compare them head to head and say, well, under this set of situations, this is what we find, and this this is what it costs. This is how long it takes. That kind of thing. So that's been it's been really interesting, a really interesting experience working with this group. And so you had said that the population modeling paper had just come out. Is that on their website? It should be. It was out actually a year or two ago. It's in a journal called Plus One, and uh, it's open access. So if you search for it, you'll be able to find it. And I think you should be able to just find it online if you do Plus One. And then you're looking for cats and population dynamic modeling. You had run this program at Texas A&M with the feral cats. And I get a lot of emails and questions about college campuses and how to manage a feral cat colony situation there with the thought that kids are always abandoning their cats that they get while they're at college. Do you have any recommendations for for potential resources or any thoughts about how to manage a program on a campus with the knowledge that if you had student volunteers, there's going to be a lot of turnover? One nice resource is Alley Cat Allies. They have a whole section on campus programs, and a really valuable resource is their listserv for campus programs. So if you join, then if you have a problem or if you if you have a solution, you can share it with other folks and get where the collective wisdom takes you. The thing with campus programs is that they're really very variable in how they run. Ours did start off as a student organization at Texas A&M, and then eventually it morphed to something that was more of a faculty-driven, smaller student organization that was based in the vet school. And because it was at a vet school, we had the unique opportunity to integrate it into the curriculum, which is really how we were able to make it stay as a long-term program at the university. Places without vet schools, you need other veterinary sources, but some have been really creative and they've done research where they've looked at cat feeding patterns or cat home ranges, cat movements. And so they've been able to also take advantage of the educational opportunities. And that gives them some leverage in keeping cats on campus. Other places uh, have still had to operate below the radar. That's really challenging. And sometimes you can just ask forgiveness afterwards. 
But in a lot of cases, I do recommend trying to find a faculty mentor who's really keen. Sometimes you can actually find people in, in the physical plant or the whatever department it is who's responsible for dealing with the animals on campus because we found some, you know, real cat lovers at Texas A&M in that physical plant program, and they were very, very supportive and helpful in the program. So they were very happy to have it. They would tell us if they saw new cats. If there was a problem cat, they would trap it and bring it to us so we could get it neutered and, and handle the issues, that kind of thing. So look widely for an animal lover. We've had people from the English department. We've had people from the wildlife department. They don't have to be animal faculty. They just have to be someone who cares about the cats and is willing to help drive the program for you and be a champion for you. That's uh, it's great advice. And, you know, always try and set up an official program and work with the parties first before going underground too quickly. Definitely reach out and introduce yourself before trying anything. Margaret, I wanted to ask you, in addition to this, uh, the, the modeling that you've been working on, what other sort of projects have you got going on or is just the list just so long? It's a little bit long. One th really interesting project, actually, that's related to this is the idea of getting residents engaged in doing trap neuter return. So sometimes there's just a cat or two in their backyard. Sometimes they're feeding them. Sometimes they just see them. And how do we make it possible for people? What are the barriers for people? We're looking in New York City, particularly, where there's a lot of barriers, including transportation, to engage folks explain what trap neuter return is because we found most people have no idea it's an option and engage them as much as possible. Teach them how to set the trap. If they're willing, have them transport. If they're able, uh, have them continue to feed these cats. And so we're still in the data collection piece of that. But that, I think that's been a tough nut for us to crack is how do we get the residents engaged? Because there's always some cat people who are willing to do it, but then they tend to get burned out over time. And if we can get residents engaged to do a few cats here, a few cats there, finds a few people who are a spokesperson who said, hey, I did it. It wasn't a big deal. You can do it, too. That feels like a way of bringing trap neuter return to a lot more cats. Yeah, definitely. You know, many hands make light work. Is that the phrase? Um, and I think I feel that way in Massachusetts. So we have a lot of volunteer trappers that have been doing this for 20, 20 plus years. And lifting those traps is not as exciting as it was 20 years ago for them. We're worried about passing the baton along to other people. It definitely an interesting idea. And a neighborhood cats has modeled that with the getting the neighborhood residents working on um, trapping, but I'm not sure how strategic you can be with that residence model too. Yeah, I think, I think you always end up probably needing some combination of very grassroots residents and then some expert trappers for places where there's someone who's incapacitated and can't do the trapping or where the cats are really hard to trap for some reason. So I'm guessing that, that we'll probably need both, but even the piece of just explaining to the, to the residents in, the, in these neighborhoods that if you neuter these cats, they'll be much less of a nuisance, they'll be healthier, they'll still be able to do the rodent control for you, which in the city is a big deal, and here's how you feed them without attracting rodents. Just that piece of, of conversation, I think, has been kind of rewarding and has, has yielded some nice results. So, Margaret, if people are interested in finding out more about your work, how could they find you? The best way is email. I'm at margaret.slater at aspca.org. So that's the ASPCA is who I'm working for now. And that's the best way to reach me. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? 
There was one more thing, I think. When you're trying to start a TNR program, one of the things that we found really helpful in all kinds of programs and projects is to couch it as a pilot. And that's what I did when I started it in Texas. I said, let's try this for a year. After a year, we'll stop, we'll review the data, we'll review the problems, we'll review the successes, and we'll make a plan to go forward. So you may even want to do it for shorter than that. You might want to do four to six months. But try you can often try it out that way, and you can get people who are kind of resistant to say, well, okay, because they figure you're going to fail. And you know that if you do it well and pick an easy success, you can succeed and then prove that it actually does work and go forward from there. That's a great point. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that with us. And Margaret, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats.